Gracious God, we praise you for the gifts of your word and the gift of your spirit. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that inspired John in accurately recording these words for us, would now work among us to see the truth and beauty of who you are, Jesus, to live out the reality that your words point us to, perhaps as never before. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Like so many instances in the Gospels, our reading this morning from John chapter 4 involves a misunderstanding. Much like Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and especially like last week with the woman at the well earlier in John 4. The episode captured in these verses involves Jesus' hearers not quite grasping his full meaning. The disciples understand Jesus' words on a physical level, but struggle to get at the deeper or higher meaning to which his words point. And throughout the Gospels, these moments of misunderstanding often represent an opportunity, an invitation. An invitation to move further into faith, an opportunity to step further in to trust in Jesus both for the characters in the story that John is telling and for us in 21st century Austin. Now, like I said, often these episodes of misunderstanding, in them Jesus is using physical terms, hunger or thirst or birth, to point to deeper, unseen spiritual realities. And in our own lives, I think we can make the same misunderstanding, have the same misunderstanding as the disciples here. And as it is for them, I believe it's an invitation. In my own life, I often find my heart, my mind, my prayers fixed and focused on physical, material realities. The stuff of crisis, stress and concern, having enough, unsure about the future, questions of physical well-being and contentment. And such realities are significant. But so often in my life, the invitation of Jesus in the midst of these moments is to press beyond the specific need and to grow in trust and confidence that Jesus is present, that my well-being is more truly and fully held secure in him. The issue is often not the specific provision. God is more than capable of meeting every need. But that is often where I am fixated. And at the root of the concern, I feel is an invitation, an opportunity to entrust myself to Jesus more. And one of my hopes with this series, as I've said before, is that we would corporately, personally, hear that invitation to draw nearer to Jesus with faith throughout the series in John. And there is such an invitation this morning from John chapter 4. And that invitation, I think, comes as we focus this morning on two things, on food that satisfies And second, on work that is finished. So first, food that that satisfies. John 4, 31 to 38, our reading this morning, follows immediately from the episode last week, Jesus and the woman and the well. And these seven verses take place in those moments after Jesus has interacted with this woman at Jacob's well and immediately before she returns with her fellow villagers many of whom in the following verses will come to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world. 
And Jesus' disciples, out of genuine concern for him, having been sent to get food, are in this moment, this brief pause, eager for him to eat. Physical food. You're hungry. Eat something. And Jesus' response is, I'm full. I'm satisfied. I have food you know nothing about. And just like the woman at the well, the disciples do not get it. They think they're talking about physical needs and hunger. Like, that food sounds pretty good. Like, what did you eat? Like, do you remember uh, the movie Hook, right? Like the, the, the uh, feast that Rufio invites Robin Williams to, and there's no food there? It's like that moment. The disciples are like, I don't see it. I don't get it. What is Jesus referring to? What is he suggesting here? Jesus, as fully God, fully man, lived this perfect human life, a life of beauty, goodness, and truth, the best kind of life. What can we learn from him here? In verse 34, Jesus clarifies things a little bit by saying, my food, my food, the food I'm referring to, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, it clarifies things a little, but it still needs maybe a little more for us. It cannot be here that Jesus is saying physical needs are irrelevant to him, are not a part of his existence. As one who was fully human, Jesus experienced the same physical needs and limitations as you and I. He got hungry and thirsty and tired. He bled. And the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, knows these experiences fully. So he can't be saying, like, I don't get hungry. Nor is Jesus here saying that his disciples should never think of physical things like food and hunger. That he is speaking of something higher, spiritual realities, is not to deny the importance, the place of physical needs, or to declare them as unworthy of attention. The whole point in the Gospel of John of God entering into human existence in Jesus is an affirmation of the value that God places on the physical realm. Even as the followers of Jesus are called to set their hearts and minds on things that are above, that doesn't mean we denigrate or ignore the physical realities, the stuff of human experience. So what is Jesus on about here? In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, the the Jewish-Austrian psychiatrist and philosopher, Viktor Frankl, reflects on his experiences in the Holocaust. And he argues that the human ability to endure great suffering is bound up with a sense of meaning or purpose. When every other pleasure, comfort, or freedom has been removed, Frankel suggests a person still has the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Beyond the physical circumstances, the suffering, the capacity to endure involves deciding how it is you will live and respond. And that capacity, Frankel suggests, is rooted in our sense of meaning. An interesting detail in the verses just before our passage today is that the woman at the well, when she leaves to return to her village, she leaves behind her water jug. It's there in verse 28. Now, like I said, that's not because she never needed to drink again, like meeting Jesus had changed the chemical requirements of her body. And it's also not just because she was forgetful that John includes this detail is noteworthy. 
It's that meeting Jesus, her heart and her life were seized by a greater meaning, a higher purpose that superseded the physical needs of thirst or washing in that moment. She had found in her meeting with Jesus a meaning that resulted in her decision, in her choosing to prioritize him over her immediate comfort and well-being. This is getting at what Jesus is declaring in verse 34. I am satisfied, he says. I am prioritizing goals and purposes beyond my physical needs, above my comfort and pleasure. His food, what satisfies and sustains him, he says, is to do the will of the one who sent him, to continue and complete the work of the Father. Jesus is saying, that is my higher purpose. This is a through line that runs the entire length of John's gospel. Time and again, Jesus will stress that he does only what he sees the Father doing, that he does nothing on his own, that his life is unfolding according to the Father's intentions and purposes, and that Jesus lives this way is what makes the shape of his life so remarkable. That Jesus has this enduring purpose, this sense of meaning and connection to God's plans allows him to live with freedom, to live for an audience of one, to endure suffering and difficulty, to endure loss and sacrifice, to act in love even when others oppose and hate him, deprive him of his physical needs and comfort. He chooses this higher purpose and it satisfies him. But what can we say about this work? What is the will of the Father for him? And that term work also appears throughout the Gospel of John. And often it refers to the miracles, the, the deeds of power that Jesus does through the Gospel. But the most notable for our purposes use of this term comes at the end of John. In John 17 verse 4. There as Jesus is giving his final address to the disciples, praying for them, he says to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. There's a, a connection between the glory of the Father and the work Jesus is to do. We might say Jesus' work ultimately, as the word of God made flesh, is to communicate the glory of God to human beings in creation. This is his work. And everything Jesus does is oriented toward this purpose, glorifying the Father. And the completion of that work, seeing it done, seeing people respond to it, satisfies and sustains him in a way that nothing else, not even the greatest meal, not even the most wondrous physical delight, all the comfort of the world pales in comparison to this. This purpose, this work, glorifying the Father, gives Jesus what Viktor Frankl calls the courage to suffer the freedom to go without? Do you desire and long for the good life, for the same unity of purpose, the same freedom you see in Jesus? The path forward is not to acquire more stuff or to insulate your life from vulnerability as though that were possible. The path forward, rather, is to take on the same purpose as Jesus to make his food your own, to make his work, glorifying the Father, your life's work. 
In him, we see a purpose and a calling that is worthy of our lives. In the pattern of his life, we see a goal emerge that is grand and great enough to satisfy us in a way that the next promotion, the next accolade, the the next affirmation can never do. In his book, Frankel says, when a person cannot find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. To be human is to hunger for meaning. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way, God has set eternity in every human heart. You and I were made for eternal, everlasting meaning and purpose. And when you and I do not have that meaning, we distract ourselves from the reality that we are starving. But Jesus doesn't live that kind of life, even in a moment of physical deprivation, like he's probably hungry here. And that physical suffering will only increase in his life. Like, think of the cross. Even in that context, Jesus is able to be satisfied in a truer and deeper way because he's on about glorifying the Father. He has this eternal, enduring purpose. He's bringing it to completion. Do you want to be satisfied in life? Make the glory of God your purpose. In every situation, at every moment, every day, in whatever tasks and vocation, as an artist, an accountant, as a software engineer, as a father or mother, as a single person following Jesus, set your purpose toward revealing and pointing to God's majesty, his goodness, his grace, and power. That purpose endures whether you are employed or unemployed, in good health and bad health, at every stage of life. The purpose can be, I am glorifying God. Make that your purpose and you will find yourself free. You will find yourself satisfied, satiated. Now, were we to leave things there, you would rightly intuit the task is to conform your life more and more to the pattern we see in Jesus. And that, of course, is true. In the life Jesus lived, we see the life we long for and were made for. We see the purpose, the freedom, the goodness, and love that we desire to mark out our own lives. But the reality is, is that the work and purpose we see Jesus doing is beyond us. Paul's writing in Romans 7 connects to what the psalmists call, we all have an undivided heart. Or sorry, a divided heart. (laughs) You want an undivided heart. You have a divided heart. I want an undivided heart. I have a divided heart. We don't have the capacity for the kind of life that Jesus lives. If the work is ours, it will be incomplete. It is too much for us to make his work our own. And that brings us to the second heading, work that is finished. The quote on the front of your bulletin this morning comes from this remarkable essay by Dorothy Sayers entitled, Why Work? A provocative, resonant question, perhaps. This essay was written in 1942, long before questions about the rise of artificial intelligence or the gig economy and their effect on the human experience of work. But even in then, even then, 80-some years ago, Sayers called for a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. The main thrust of this called for revolution is expressed in the questions in your quote. 
And the question of what makes work worthwhile, of course, relates to our ideas about employment, career, how we spend our work days. But as Sayers points out in the essay, these questions actually also relate to the whole of our lives, the attitude to which we bring to life, the ultimate values that orient us. For Jesus' disciples, the original hearers of John's gospel, their sense of meaning, their ultimate values were caught up in the hope, the expectation that God was going to set things right. They were waiting and called to lives of holiness out of such hope and expectation that one day the work of God would be complete and the holy, the righteous would be vindicated. And they needed to faithfully endure and and pass that conviction on to their children. This hope, this hoped for end is frequently connected in the Bible, in the Old Testament, with the image of a harvest with the actions of reaping and sowing. One day, a harvest of righteousness and peace would come to fruition when God fully and finally acted. Zechariah, the passage this morning in our Old Testament, does not mention harvest, but it gets at the idea written about in Psalm 126 or Isaiah 9. And in the completion of his work given by the Father, Jesus is imploring his disciples, imploring you and I to open our eyes, to see that this ripe, full harvest of peace, of goodness and righteousness, has now come to be. In the language of sowing and reaping here, he connects to these Old Testament passages, Amos 9, where the abundance of God's expected rain is such that the seed is sown and it immediately sprouts up and bears fruit. There's no waiting. There's no delay between sowing and reaping. There's no waiting for four months. There's no waiting for tomorrow. Jesus' words are, today is the day of salvation. Today, the harvest is coming to fruition. And what Jesus is pointing to, physically, the villagers, this village of Samaritans, thought to be outside God's purposes and plans, are coming to believe in him as the savior of the world. That is the sign, he is saying, that this hoped-for reality is coming to pass in the present, in real time. In Jesus, the work of the Father, the long-waited-for acts of God, are being completed, are being finished. And that same language finished, will of course appear in John 19 at the end. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, it is complete. The work is done and the harvest of peace and righteousness for which his people hoped for, for which every human heart longs, is now here. Yes, it so often does not look like it. If you only look to the physical realities, it so often looks incomplete or like it's moving backwards. But do not be confused. Do not misunderstand. With the eyes of faith, we see that because of Jesus, the harvest is ripe and righteousness and peace, the fruit of eternal life, is now present and available in him. And because of that, the disciples half confused, only partially getting it, can be sent out in confidence to reap what they did not sow because the work is being brought to completion. The harvest is already here, sown by, the, by Moses, the prophets, completed in Jesus. 
In his obedience on the cross, in his resurrection, we see the work of God has been completed, is now being finished. So you and I are free. Free to make God's purposes our own. Whatever the cost, whatever the suffering. Free to look on Jesus and make the glory of God the prime purpose of our lives. Because the harvest is now here. And in Jesus, we see that. And it cuts to the quick. It cuts us to our hearts. It softens us in a way that all the grinning and bearing it, all the the hard work cannot do. As we look to Jesus and his completed work on the cross, our hearts are made new. That his work can become ours. We're free to entrust ourselves to him, knowing that in his work, everything that might keep us from God's purposes and plans has been dealt with. He has done it. So we can make the work our own. We can make the worthwhile work of Jesus ours with confidence that we've been qualified at the cross and have been and are being equipped in the Spirit, empowered to prioritize his worthwhile, worthy work, empowered to satisfy ourselves on his food. What am I trying to say here? In closing, two implications, two exhortations. First, set your hope on Jesus for the first time or yet again more deeply. That is the beginning of making his work your own. In John 6, verse 29, Jesus declares, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you receive him, that you set your confidence for work, for life, for meaning and satisfaction in his completed work on the cross. If you're struggling to put it into words, Verbalize it. Jesus, I trust you. Help me to trust you. Help my unbelief. And come to this table in faith. Receive spiritual food. Receive the tokens of the harvest, now completed. Set your hope in Jesus. And the second thing is make your misunderstanding an invitation. In the areas of life where you are experiencing stress and anxiety, ask God for the eyes of faith to see where he might be inviting you to greater trust, to see where beyond the physical crisis there's an opportunity to more fully shift your confidence to Jesus and away from earthly things, that you might live the satisfied, purposeful life God has for you, the life of good and satisfying work we see in Jesus. He has food that you and I, in and of ourselves, know nothing about, and cannot attain. But by faith, it is on offer to us. So take, receive, and be satisfied. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.